0: What if everything you thought of, health and wellness, suddenly changed due to a hidden breathing problem that you are unaware of that affects every system in your body? Improper breathing habits are often overlooked in medicine. I'm Dr. Jenny from the Hobson Institute, and this is The Breathing Lab. So welcome, everybody. I am here with Dr. Peter Catalano. Uh, Peter is a, is a medical doctor. He's an ENT, graduated from a Columbia Columbia University School of Engineering, followed by an MD from the Mount Sinai um, Akon School of Medicine in New York City, completed his residency at um, MSH and became a full-time faculty member and associate from 1990 to 1999. He was an associate professor of otolaryngology, neurosurgery, maxillofacial surgery, so a lot of different um, specialties in his toolbox. From 2000 to 2010, he was a chair of otolaryngology at Leahy uh, Clinic in Boston, followed by chair of surgery at Stewart Healthcare 2010 to 2012. Then he was a chief of otolaryngology and rhinology fellowship director at SEMC, and professor of otolaryngology at Tufts University from 2010 to 2023. Academically, academically, he is active with 340 invited lectures, 25 book chapters, and over 95 peer-reviewed publications. So welcome, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm so excited to have you. So I'm going to go ahead and so I'm a physical therapist and I'm a PT that understands TMJ really well. I treat the Rockabatto, uh method and I've helped many people for over 20 years on how to reduce tension in the head and neck. And um, it's all around nasal breathing, oral posture, and how how, if you're in that posture, the muscles in your head and neck kind of fall into place and are nice and relax and they're not tight and causing you to clench. But it wasn't really until I truly understood like the myofunctional therapy part of oral posture, I trained with Mariano and we we talk about tongue position, but it's like understanding that and really um, restoring that in people is different than just knowing it. Um, so When I met you uh, through a webinar through the American Academy of Physiological Medicine and Dentistry, uh, I'm a member as a PT, and I heard you speak um, at the Wednesday webinars that they have that are wonderful, and you spoke about such great research, and that's really what, you know, really drew me to want to contact you and, and have you share more information to my patients to the other medical professionals in the airway community that are interested in bruxism and nose breathing and how all of that fits together and and really the the lack of research that there is um around linking the two so um i i i loved your webinar and i thought you did an excellent job and um i really wanted i wanted to bring that to the group so Thank you uh, for accepting this this interview my pleasure so I will get right into the questions here um, what made you start your inquiry about the root cause of bruxism? Um,
1: well the bruxism piece is kind of interesting. Uh, I work with a lot of dentists and orthodontists um, because a lot of this uh, a lot of the problems that are found in the mouth and with the development of the teeth and all, uh, is thought to be related primarily to breathing disorders, especially in children as they then age. Um, And my orthodontist was always telling me that uh, bruxism is related to lack of oxygen during sleep. And I wasn't sure that that was really true. Um, I had no reason to doubt him. He's a very bright guy, Dr. John Walker. He's a phenomenal orthodontist. He just celebrated his 80th birthday, and he's as sharp and active as he ever was. (laughs) He's crazy. But um, when I was in medical school, which was quite some time ago, we were always taught that bruxism was due to stress. And back then, we would treat patients with angiolytic medications and muscle relaxants if they had bruxism and tension in the facial muscles. Um, and that went on for years. When I met Dr. Wallach and we started talking about the orthodontic approach to this. He explained to me how uh, it really is due to uh, airway issues. There's a, there's a terrific study that was done in the 1970s by Dr. Harvald, who's a Norwegian orthodontist. And Harvold uh, examined his patients and observed his patients and noticed that the patients that he treated for orthodontic issues all had a common problem which was an abnormal craniofacial development and he said you know this is more than coincidental this must be cause and effect but he didn't know exactly what was happening so he thought it had to do with breathing and so he took these monkeys and um, he plugged he took these primate baby monkeys uh, and he plugged half of them he took half of them he plugged their nostrils with silicone plugs and the other ones he left grow normal. And what he found over six months was that the monkeys that had their nose blocked developed this adenoid facies we call it today, um, with changes in craniofacial growth structure, narrow faces, elongated faces, and the other thing that was cool was rhythmic jaw movements that they couldn't explain what these rhythmic jaw movements were, and the other thing that was really cool about his study um, was that he then took the plugs out of these monkeys after six months, they were still babies, relatively young monkeys, and allowed them to now grow normally with normal nasal breathing, just like the other monkeys who had no craniofacial abnormalities. And the problem started to reverse. The rhythmic jaw movements went away and the craniofacial skeleton abnormalities started to slowly reverse because they were still baby monkeys. So there was a cause effect and a perceived reversibility in in this effect that he saw, so that was buried in the orthodontic literature in the 1970s. It's 50 years later, and we resurrected this work. We could have known about this a long time ago. It's embarrassing, but this is what happens. You know, the silos of of medicine and dentistry. You know, they don't talk to each other. Right. But we never heard about this work, and and never much of what I'm talking about was never talked to me ever by anybody in medicine. Medicine has a big cloud around this area. Um, anyway, so I, I knew about the Harvard work with the rhythmic motion of the jaw. And then hearing my colleagues telling me that in orthodontic literature, there seems to be a big connection between bruxism and airway issues. Um, so I said, well, why don't we look at this from a different perspective? They didn't have a way of correcting the airway to see if it would impact the bruxism. We now have a way to do that. We have really good airway surgery that if we took a bunch of Bruxers and we treated their airway, what would happen? And that would be one way to potentially try to confirm this theory, which has been otherwise unproven in terms of, you know, can it reverse? Is it reversible? So we did children. We took 25 children and we took 25 adults. And um, they all had to Brux by two confirmed sources. One would be, if it was a child, it would be a parent. If it was an adult, it would be a bed partner uh, or someone who was had slept with them to hear. Uh, and the dentist who said, yeah, there was wear on the teeth that they could see. Um, so we had to confirm that the bruxism was real. And, and then um, they had to have, obviously, what we call sleep disorder breathing, which was difficulty with breathing at night during sleep. And due to, again, a nasal airway issue. Um, We then, if they met that criteria and they were diagnosed with the airway issue, we then operate on their nose to give them uh, a much better breathing pathway, especially at night. Um, And we'll go into why the nighttime thing is so, so unique. And then we watched them over the next four months to six months to see what happened with the Bruxism. And we found something which was pretty interesting and not so surprising. In the children, and the children was anyone from age five to 16 years of age. So that's how we define the children group. And the adults were really the anyone 18 and, and older. Um, and we didn't go to this 18 to age five, because then we get the crossover at age 18. So we said, let's just make it really pediatric and really adult. So we did the age 16 as the max on the kids and 18 and up for the adults. Um, and it was fairly really split between men and women. There wasn't a difference in that particular uh, demographic. And what we found was that in the children, oh, one other thing we did was we did something called a nose score. A nose score is a is a, a subjective metric that's been validated after the metric in otolaryngology to assess how obstructed the nose is subjectively from the patient's perspective. And they have one for children as well. Um, and it's, it's a simple five questions about do they feel obstructed? Does it change with exercise? Does it change with positioning, et cetera? Do they mouth breathe? A couple of different things they asked. And then that was also done before and after because one of the things we wanted to see was well, if we got their bruxism better, how much did the nose score change? So we know that there was an improvement in breathing. And if their bruxism didn't change, was it because their nasal surgery wasn't as good as we had hoped? Is there a direct correlation there? And so what we found was that. In the children, 100% of the kids had cessation of bruxism over three months. And every one of them got better, uh, to the point that there was no bruxism. And the parents were actually, you know, I have to go in and listen, because I used to know he was sleeping because he was grinding. Now I don't hear anything anymore. So I have to go in and watch, they they get concerned that there's no more noise. Um, And in the adult group, it was actually very interesting. One-third of the patients completely stopped bruxing. No noise at all, no discomfort, no pain. Uh, One-third had no change at all. And then one-third had improvement without complete cessation of bruxing. When we then looked at the nose scores, which was how well did we actually correct the airway, at least in this one way of measuring it, there was a correlation between adult patients who had very difficult noses, really challenging noses, and the ability for us to correct it to an acceptable point. And when we couldn't, they continued to brux. Now the other thing about adults that was tricky is, and I go back to my medical school training, which again I'm not saying it was 100% accurate, but adults may have a lot more of a, of a Stress overlay on top of this whole thing, as opposed to a a, you know a five six seven eight year old child, um, because there are so many more things that affect adults: financial issues, parental issues, you know, all kinds of things that go on that kids don't really get exposed to. So maybe there was also this stress component which we didn't assess for in the adult population, but we did find that young people, and you correct their nose, the the muscle memory, this learned disorder that they have, abruxing, is correctable, but the longer they have it, the adult group, is not as easy to, to get rid of it and also does correlate with the ability to correct the nose. Adults sometimes have very difficult noses to correct because they've had the problem for so long as opposed to a kid who you know, hasn't really developed as much of a problem with their, with their nose at that point. So that's it's what like- we found.
0: For for my nose, I had my nose done about just a septum surgery, and it's just narrow, right? So the more narrow you are, it doesn't matter how correct the septum is. It still gives you resistance to breathing, more difficulty if you are at all, have allergies or congested at all. It's still narrowed, even though you correct it. Well, a lot there's, of my- so
1: many things. there's so many things we do now to counter that. So there's a lot of work we can do in the nose that's very minor that really shrinks the tissue volume down, can treat allergies <clears throat> uh, really well. Also with something called cryotherapy is a whole bunch of different things we do now that are dramatically different than we could do 10, five right. years ago. So uh, anyway, that's how I got into bruxism. It was the article by by Harvold. It was my orthodontic colleagues telling me what they believe Bruxism is due to nowadays. And if you bring up stress or tension to the orthodontic groups that I dealt with, They told me I was crazy. No, there's none of that. It's all airway, 100%. I'm not so sure that it's 100%, but we did make a lot of people happy. So two-thirds of the adult group, we either better or cured to the point that they were very comfortable with their situation, and one-third, we didn't get better. But those people, most of them had difficulty getting the airway we want. I hope that it's a long-winded answer, but it, it requires that kind of an answer, you understand, Whole yeah,
0: no, I I love that you brought up the monkey study and I I think we all a lot of the airway people we know about it and then for some reason there's periods that research gets done and then it's got it gets dropped and forgotten and then for some reason we get into a different era of believing something else. Um but I I do know of that study and um you know I think the book breath really brought that back because of the silicone plugs that James Nestor did, and you know his his associate that did the study with him. Same type of issues came up, um, but they were adults. So these are these are younger monkeys, and that's why it's so important to treat children. Right? It's critical to treat children. But if you're talking about surgery on children, and you know, and a lot of people say, "Well, is that safe? You know, is that is that okay to do? Does it change the craniofacial development of?" children that are still growing into their faces. You know, what could you just comment on that?
1: Sure. Um, you know, I almost lost my medical license over this. So it's something that's near and dear to my heart. Um, my colleagues uh, around the country thought that we were unethical operating on children because we were all taught, me included, myself included, that you never operate on a child's nose or sinus under the age of 16 unless they were really, really disabled, like the cystic fibrosis or something like that. And uh, we realized that, you know, these are, these are the people who need it the most. It's the young people because after age 10 or 11, about 90% of the craniofacial growth is already done. You can't change it at that point. So if you don't intervene early enough where they can grow to their normal potential, you're setting them up to be a nasal cripple, if you will, or a nasally affected person for the rest of their life, which is why the adults are difficult to treat. So anyway, um, we realized the the person who taught me this surgery, who's a a wonderful doctor who's retired now from um, South Dakota, believe it or not, and he was also ostracized for doing the same kind of work. But the data shows just the opposite, and I I sent you several articles on this already, and they're longitudinal studies, which are hard to do, so they follow children for five years, seven years, nine years, 12 years. After surgery, and there are four independent studies done um, showing that there is no craniofacial growth restriction or adverse impact from operating on the nasal airway in children. Um, now that's not cosmetic surgery. So a rhinoplasty is a different kettle of fish. But nasal breathing, actually, the earlier the better. So we go down to age four because four to six is the is the sweet spot actually for children. Um, so I had to prove this to the medical board that I was not crazy and the licensing board and the insurance companies. And when I showed them all the data, they, they were surprised that no one else who was complaining about this was aware of the data. And so they gave me a pat on the back said, keep doing good work. That's really what we need to do. And they reversed all of those issues. Um, so the awareness out there is really absent, even in the medical community. And unfortunately, what happens with parents they go to a pediatrician who doesn't know the answer to this, or another ENT who doesn't, and say, No, don't, don't have that done. That's wrong. And the parent thinks you're doing something wrong. They don't understand this because the knowledge, the awareness is not even out there. It's, it's in patches of information, patches of knowledge here and there. So, children uh, are the main target actually to stop a generation of, of airway problems. You know, that's the whole goal.
0: So the children though if 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 you're saying that it's good to do and to to actually move forward with surgery, um, where can they find people that do it right it, it's it's not that many of you that are willing to do this surgery at that young age. you know are are you finding people coming to to travel to see you and do you know other airway um, airway centric, you know, ENTs that understand the, the importance of doing this at a younger age?
1: Well, this is the problem that we run into. I get this question from every dentist and orthodontist that I work with, is they see children. They're all getting orthodontic care, right? So these are the kids. And it's in families, genetic disorder. This breathing issue is genetic. So if one child has it, there's a very good chance another child will have it, and one or both parents have it. So you, you wind up treating the whole families when it comes to airway after. Um The problem with ENTs is the following just so everybody out there knows what they're facing if they go to an ENT or refer to an ENT. Number one, they're not trained in even assessing the airway properly. All the things we talked about, many of them don't even know. They don't know that it's not unethical to operate on a trial. They're still going by the old dogma, which they haven't seen in these papers. So their background of education is limited. They're not trained in pediatric surgery because it wasn't done in training because it was very limited. So very few are trained in. Um, Number three, they're very busy already. Most ENTs are very busy. They don't want to take on another problem that they're not used to. They say, Pete, why do I want to do that? I'm swamped as it is, which is a reality for many of them. And then the last piece, unfortunately, is the medical legal piece. And that is something called the statute of limitations. So in an adult, just for those of you who don't know, if someone comes to you for care and they are unhappy and want to sue you, um, they have a three-year window in which to do that if they're over 18. So uh, once the three-year mark is, is reached, they can no longer sue you for whatever happened uh, with your care of them. And a the child is till age 21. So if you operate on a five-year-old, a six-year-old, seven-year-old, you're potentially liable until they reach you know, another 15 years or 10 years. And many of them don't want to carry that burden, which is why obstetric care is so expensive. And the malpractice for obstetricians is through the roof. It's over $100,000 a year because of this statute of limitation on babies, which goes from birth up to age 18, 20, whatever it might be. So those are the hurdles and the barriers to pediatric care in this area. Some will do it, but they are very few, unfortunately.
0: Are you planning on teaching this to other ENTs? I teach it all the
1: time. I teach it all over the world. What's interesting, though, Jenny, is that outside the U.S., they know about it, they're receptive to it, and some of them have started to implement it. When I go back another year later for another lecture, another course, they they, oh, I've tried this, I've done, and, and they're seeing the benefits. In this country, it's very difficult. There's a big difference with, barriers to acceptance in the US versus OUS. And unfortunately, our patients suffer from it. So I'm, I run a course every year in Southeast Asia and doctors from that whole region, from India, Southeast Asia, Korea, all those areas come there and they are aware of this and they see these patients and they're willing to do it and they don't think you're crazy. And they say, yeah, we understand that, we are, they are aware. But here, they're not even aware. They think this airway stuff is, is not connected to uh, what we're talking about. You know, they, they don't see the value.
0: I've reached out to a lot of the ENTs, at least in Chicagoland, and I've explained to them the effects of the tongue position and the growth and development when the tongue is low and not resting on the, the growing bones um, as they swallow. And they they look at me like that's not true. And how can that <laughs> be? And like, what are you saying? And I and so it 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 hasn't been a successful um team approach, you know, like I I have w- a couple and it's not and I want I want the ENTs to be a part of the team and to really understand this. Um and it's if they need surgery, they know how to do the surgery and that's it. But they don't understand the the before and after care that much of what it takes to really change an adult to actually become a nasal breather, even uh-huh. If they correct the surgery, you know, they think they, oh, well, they fixed it and that should be done and that should be it. So can you comment on that?
1: Yeah, well, you hit it right on the head. I mean, this is a real problem. Um, That's why, you know, we're part of AAPMD because it's a great community of people from many different disciplines like you have on this podcast, the webinar, who come from different backgrounds, but understand how airway affects their patients. And it's a big deal. Whether you're a physical therapist, a dentist, a malfunctional therapist, an orthodontist, an ENT, um, even psychologists who deal with ADD, ADHD, I mean, these behavioral problems in children, many of it is due to breathing problems. Low hanging fruit. Um, try to get them to to not give a kid Ritalin or some medication because the airway is the issue. That's another big challenge. You know, they're so married to these pharmacologic treatments um, without even thinking about the airway. Again. It it's just takes time. It takes probably seven to 10 years to change a paradigm like this and to get people thinking differently. It also takes a community. So I'm so glad you guys are doing this and interested in this because the more sources of information we have, the more people and disciplines understanding the importance of this, the, the more likely we're gonna to get to this level of awareness we need uh, in, in a better time period.
0: The the bruxism that we see in, you know, nighttime sleep disorder breathing. I see bruxism during the day with my patients. And, mm-hmm. and I wanted to just people don't understand that the way they breathe at night and, and their sleep disordered breathing or their sleep apnea, whatever it is. They're breathing in properly all day. And um I I feel like at least. When you commented on the 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 different um positions of the jaw in those baby monkeys that you know they 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 have this rhythmical movement. I see that in my adults, I see that in children. Um and it's it's a day and a nighttime breathing issue. It's not just a nighttime people kind of categorize it as it's a sleep problem. Um and that's really what I I I'm so interested in um, the effects of what nasal breathing can do to reduce bruxism because I feel like um, the oral posture training that I really do think if you correct the oral posture so that your tongue is gently, lightly, sucked lightly up on the palate with your teeth either lightly meeting or slightly apart with everything relaxed, nose breathing is easy. That restores the the health of that area and the way that you're supposed to use it. And I find that the bruxism goes away during the day. Are you saying that your study was showing just bruxism at night? Or you also, are you also getting comments from your patients that daytime bruxism, or maybe they're not aware of daytime bruxism, but are you seeing that daytime bruxism reduces as well?
1: So in our study group, we only had nighttime bruxism. We didn't have any daytime bruxes. And I personally have not seen many. They're not the type that would typically come to me. Um, so I have not seen many of the daytime bruxes. Um, I do have a couple who mentioned to me they bruxed during the day. No question about that. Um, or clench. Sometimes it's clenching more than bruxing that they, they describe. Um, the, the airway issue at night is usually, well, let's just back up a second. Some patients breathe poorly 24 four seven. No question. They are mouth breathers during the day. The tongue is never in the right place. The jaws open. The muscles are not behaving properly, etc. And um, and many of them deny this fact. But you know it's so obvious when you watch them that this is what they're doing. And you can pick it up. You know, therapists and and people aware of these things can pick it up on these patients. Um, they're easy because you can see it during the day. The nighttime group is who only have problems at night, is challenging. This is where a lot of doctors miss what's happening. The nasal tissues are not static. What I mean by that is the septum doesn't move, that's, that's not static, and that's static. But the soft tissues in the nose, what we call the turbinates in the swell body, those are very, very dynamic, uh, hemodynamically volatile structures that change size, sometimes dramatically, with the position of the head from being erect to being supine or partially supine. Um, and patients and even children are aware of this at times. They say, yeah, when I lay down, I start to obstruct. Or I notice that I wake up with a dry mouth at night because my mouth is open all the time. Or I have to switch sides. I'm on one side. That side gets blocked. I have to switch to the other side. One little boy who was nine years old said, I told my dad, dad, I want to stop sleeping like a fish. And I said well, tell me what you mean. said, well, I flip back and forth side to side like a fish out of water because my nose gets blocked on the side that I'm laying on. So I have to flip to the other side. And so even children can be aware of this phenomenon. Uh, I have parents who say, I tell them, watch your child sleep. And once they do, many people don't watch their children sleep. But once they do, they say, my God, Dr. Town, he sleeps on three, four pillows. I said, yeah, because he can't lay down. He or she knows it's not good for them. So they've corrected it themselves. Um, so these changes in the tissue size based on the loss of gravity when you lay down, which drains fluid out of the nose, leads to nighttime swelling, which patients are not aware of, of course, they're asleep. They have no idea unless they're, they're flipping like the fish. But most aren't aware of it to the point that they can do anything about it. They just conk out, their mouth opens, they snore, they have apnea, or whatever it might be, and that's their night. They sit up during the day, and it, they'll even tell you, yeah, about two hours later, my nose starts to open up, or an hour later, because of gravity changing the, the tissue structure in their nose. And so if you examine a so patient you see, you say it has a problem, they go to ENTX, and ENTX looks in the nose and says, doesn't look that bad to me because it's two o'clock in the afternoon, and they've been up for six hours. Now, you see that patient at two in the morning, different story, Right. So they're not even aware of this physiologic change at night. And this is where they get into this problem because you know there's a problem. The patient doesn't know what's happening because they're sleeping most of the time. They don't know there's an issue. And you're trying to convince them there's a problem that the ENT doesn't see because they examine them during the daytime. And you don't look in the nose to be able to tell them you wouldn't see it in a day anyway. And at nighttime is the real issue. So no one explains this to them. And so they kind of get bounced around or they're not convinced there's an issue. because the ENT said, no, there's nothing wrong.
0: <laughs> right. And that's why elevating the head helps for with sure. certain, certain patients that, that yeah. are congested. Right. And, yeah. you know, the majority of my patients, I, 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 I tell them, it's always good to use some kind of dilator, some kind of like a breathe right strip or a nasal dilator. And a lot of them think, Oh, my nose works just fine. And I, I tell them, <laughs> you know, Adults are a little already messed up in terms of their craniofacial development. We all have something that's a, either a little bent or that it just optimizes the, the space for your nose to work better. Um, do you promote those for these types of patients, or do you feel like do they need that after surgery? Like I, I myself still need it after surgery. Um, and 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 find that mouth tape is a lot more um with reducing my volume and working on how, how big I breathe all day, it reduces how big I breathe at night and I can tolerate the tape and the mouth tape and the breathe right strip. So any comment around that?
1: Yeah. So I actually developed a, a device for this, which is just about ready to be launched probably in the fall. It's called MaxAir, air. Um, and it's a little device you put in your nose before you sleep or during exercise. Because a lot of patients have exercise, Intolerance. And there's a whole other thing we talked about exercise induced asthma, which is really not asthma. It's nasal obstruction during exercise. Um, but it's for the same reason. When you breathe during exercise heavily, you collapse the soft part of your nose, which is, has the least resistance to heavy breathing. Because the quicker the air moves, which is happening during exercise, the more collapse you get, called the Bernoulli effect, where the side walls collapse. Those of us old enough to remember paper straws when we were kids. You'd suck on them and they'd collapse down and you couldn't get anything through. You'd suck harder and they'd collapse even more. Then they go over the plastic straws, which don't collapse. You, you can't have that problem anymore. Um, but anyway, um, so getting back to your question, in patients who need that for sleep, it's called nasal valve collapse, then yes, we definitely recommend it. Um, and we, we have those patients use uh, a device like Maxair or something similar. The Breathe Right strips. You know, a little uncomfortable because of the tape every day, pulling the tape on and off. But it's a good trial thing. Um, You know, breathing has an inhalation phase and an exhalation phase. So most devices that exist right now for the nasal valve don't account for that fact. When air goes in your nose during inspiration, it rises up in your nose; it arcs through your nose. So you want to have access to the upper part of the nose on inhalation, but on exhalation it comes out the bottom of the so it doesn't reverse the arc. So uh, most of the devices that are used to insert are either uncomfortable because of the pressure they place, or they don't account for the biphasic flow of air. The one that I developed along with my my ortho uh, colleague addresses that biphasic different direction or bidirectional flow so that you really can breathe in, and exhale without obstruction. So uh, soon to be on the market and very affordable, but yeah, very important. And really cool, like I said, for exercise people, as well as those for sleeping and snoring, et cetera.
0: What about those patients that still come back to you and say, you know what, the surgery, you did the surgery and I I was breathing okay at first, but now I'm stuck and I'm I'm still restricted. And I, I feel like I'm mouth breathing again. I was going to ask you if you work with breathing retrainers, myofunctional therapists, that those type of people that are aware of how to help these people train their t- their nose, their new new nasal passage that they that you've created.
1: Yeah, so we definitely work with myofunctional therapists. Um, key part. This is this is a team sport. This airway thing. That's what I call it. I call it a team sport. Whether it's physical therapists, myofunctional therapists, orthodontists, dentists, E.N.T.s. Um, uh, everybody you know, has a role to play in these patients. Not every patient needs everybody, but a lot of them need pieces of the team um, to be involved with this. So, uh, absolutely uh, the case, in fact, a lot of myofunctional therapists send us patients because they say, listen, they say, Dr. Catalano, uh, we get them to a certain point, once we realize now they can't go any further because the airway is so bad, we know we need your help. And then we have them get the surgery. and then." I've So many of it's unbelievable what they're doing now, but and they don't they don't need much further after that. But we we're, we're starting a study, which is with myofunctional therapists um, about the following. So you mentioned about uh, what happens after surgery. So let's say you're a mouth breather, and you're a uh, uh, a child, and uh, after surgery, if you're a child. My experience tells me there's a there's a high chance that that child will spontaneously correct to become a mouth breather, and I have images of that that parents have sent me. Look at my kid before. Look at my kid after. Within hours, sometimes of surgery, the kid is now sleeping with the mouth closed. So children have a higher chance, like we said about everything. Their their ability to correct this problem is is amazing in adults, not the same case. So a lot of them do need help with this because it's habitual, the mouth breathing is habitual. And even for some kids, it's habitual. And it's hard, even though the airway is great, they still need help with with closing their mouth and retraining those those muscles of the face and and the tongue. So what we don't know is what percentage and how long do they need treatment uh, after the surgery to get to that point. So the study we're setting up with with myofunctional therapists in our area is exactly trying to answer that question. Exactly. If we, so two arms of the study. One is right after surgery, they go right into myofunctional therapy with no delay. And the other group is you wait three months and you see how many self correct and then how many would then need myofunctional therapy. And at the end of the game, we're going to see who did better and you know, which group did better. Um, so we don't know the answer to that. We don't know that everybody needs some of it. Do only certain people need some of it? How long do they need it for? Even the myofunctional therapists don't know the answer to that. That's why we want to do the study because a lot of questions about how much therapy, great question you asked. How much therapy afterwards is necessary? I'm sure it varies from patient to patient as we just shared. But um, even to get your arms around, it, unknown.
0: Yeah, that's great. I I I really I I I love your your multidisciplinary approach and i wish there was more ent's like you um I really do and i it it would be an amazing thing to have every every ent i mean those are the ones that really should understand nose breathing the best in my opinion that's your specialty right it's that's it but um well,
1: i want to just say one thing about that real quick you know it was not even shown to us ent's were did not know, but I just shared you about air arcing through the nose, et cetera, That wasn't discovered until 2009. Wow. So no one knew that all these years. And that's why the survey that was done previously, which was septoplasty and inferior turbinate reduction, doesn't work in most patients because the air doesn't go along the floor of your nose where those lower turbinates are. It goes above that. If you don't deal with the blockage above that level, they're not going to breathe better. And so if you don't know about that study, which was done by a Singaporean allergist, Dr. Deyun Wang, in 2009, you don't know how airflow goes through the nose. And so ENTs are acting on the wrong structures because wow. they don't even know about this study. So it's crazy. And if I hadn't done this, this I mentioned this, this um, uh, project, we do not the part of the... Uh, course, we give every year in Southeast Asia. I wouldn't have met Dr. Way. I wouldn't have known his research because it never made it over to the United States. So wow. just crazy stuff like that.
0: Yeah. It's like we, we, don't, we don't all read the same research, right? No, we don't all read that.
1: You can't so, read everything. But you know. he discovered it in 2009. That's how recent it. Is.
0: I'm just going to let everybody know. If you want to ask any questions, please start writing them in the chat right now. I have two more questions for Dr. Catalano, and um, I'm going to open it up for questions after that. So please take a moment to do that. Um, Here's a question for you: Um, Can you just touch on empty nose syndrome and 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 how people um, can avoid empty nose syndrome? I know people are a little scared of this syndrome that may occur from surgery. Um, if Number you do one, too much surgery, I guess
1: it should never happen. In 2023, it should never happen. It shouldn't happen in 2010, 2005, but certainly not in 2023. Um, if you're going to see if your problem is airway breathing, right, um, the surgery is very targeted and and pretty limited. It's not it's not something that should ever lead to empty nose syndrome. Okay. In fact, I had a patient, one, one patient of mine um, was not, as you mentioned, was not feeling she was breathing well after surgery. Not everybody does a hundred does great. In medicine, nothing's a hundred percent. So she wasn't feeling like I improved her airway. So she went to another doctor, another ENT. He said, Well, you have empty nose syndrome. And she came back to me and told me, I said, what are you talking about? You don't have empty nose syndrome. I mean, everything is in her nose, every structure is there. So This guy just threw that term out. You don't even probably know what it is. So empty nose syndrome is when you lose all of your turbinates. There are four turbinates, two on each side, uh, that are intimately involved with breathing and the perception of airflow. So empty nose syndrome is not that you don't have air flowing, but you don't feel it because all of the sensory tissue in your nose is missing. And the turbinates are key to regulating airflow and in giving your brain feedback on your breathing. If you take that tissue out, you have nothing to moisturize the air, humidify the air, and give you a sense of breathing. So you think you're not breathing, you think you're obstructed. Meanwhile, You've got an airplane hanger in there, it's it's a big open space, but you don't feel that. You feel like you can't breathe at all. So that's what it is. And that's only with aggressive, ridiculous surgery. Should never happen for someone looking for airway surgery. So the key is, really going to a good surgeon. And I mentioned to you the doctor from South Dakota who was one of my major mentors, he's now retired, but he's writing a book with me as guest editor on how to choose the proper nasal surgeon. And we've been working on it for about a year now, year and a half, it's almost ready. But he wrote this book for that reason, because people don't know, how do you choose the right nasal surgeon? What do you ask? What do you look for? I think it would be a very popular book for the for the general population who who's you know 30 million people have airway in this country. When you,
0: when you do a turbinate reduction, how you know you're you're kind of um either cauterizing or taking down that turbinate, you know the the tissue itself, there's a certain depth that will still work. How do you how do you know how far to go and You're saying that even if you take off that top layer of swelling, that underneath layer of turbinate tissue will still function as a sensory organ or a sensory.
1: You really get empty nose only when you excise the turbinate, not shrink it, but remove it. And I was trained to remove it. I was trained to take a big scissor, put it in the nostril and cut the whole. Turbinate as big as your finger. Your index finger is the size of your lower turbinate. Your pinky might be the size of your upper turbinate amputating them and taking them out um, is what we don't want to do. So you can shrink the tissue down, but you can't remove the tissue. Got
0: it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, I always ask all, the, all my medical providers, I interview this one question is how to be the healthiest person? How do you live your life the healthiest you can? Could you share your thoughts on this? Like you knowing all that you know about. Your profession, what would you do? How would you change behavior?
1: Well, obviously, that's it. You ask everybody, you probably get so many different answers to the question because it's a very challenging question. Um, what what I try to have my patients do, and what I do, I, I do what I tell them. I don't, you know, I love when you go to the cardiologist who's 300 pounds and he's telling you you got to go on a diet because you got hypertension. <laughs> and you're like, okay. well, you're no role model for me or a smoking cardiologist, even better, right? So, it's kind of funny. So, I try to do what I tell my patients to do. Um, and you know, breathing is is key, so uh, that's why uh, I am well aware of that. Um, and the typical important things of uh, you know, uh, eating properly and knowing what to eat. Um, I tell all my patients with apnea, you know, trying to lose weight. I have a guy right now, I'm talking to him, and he's he's having a hard time. I said, Listen. You can't go for seconds, if you can just stop going back for second helping whenever you have dinner or lunch, you're going to lose weight just by doing that you don't have to go on a diet, just don't do seconds. you know reduce your alcohol consumption, which is a big deal for a lot of people. Just getting rid of something like beers for people who drink beer you know is a big calorie jump like right there you know that like, you don't have to go exercise in the gym every day, go for a walk even. A mile to two miles a day of a walk is an excellent exercise. You don't have to be stressed out in the gym. I mean, people have these misconceptions about what, it, what they need to do to be healthy. And it's not, you know, an hour aerobic exercise every day. It really isn't. It's everything in moderation, but it's, it's pushing yourself away from the table after that first helping and doing some moderate exercise and getting a really good sleep, Sleep. And stress reduction is probably number one. The stress reduction comes with all that. Sleep is a big part of stress reduction. So of all the things I read about, stress reduction is big, uh, very, very big.
0: That's a great answer. One last question about your ENT community. Is there anything <laughs> you'd like to say around the topic of what you've been presenting around on nose breathing and how we should work as a team? and you know, the effects of, you know, open mouth posture and craniofacial development, all of that, all, all of that, that you really teach to your, your students. What would you say to the general ENT community about this?
1: Well, there are very few times in one's career where you could consistently and repetitively change somebody's life trajectory. Very few times you can do that. Even cancer doctors, you know, God bless them. Um, you know, there's a lot of recurrence of cancers and a lot of people fall off on those, on those treatments. But with airway, you are changing their lives dramatically. When you take a child who has ADD or ADHD and they're now no longer with that condition, their life, not only their life, the whole family's life is changed when you don't have a child who has ADHD. Not just the child, but that child's trajectory is totally different. You take the the uh, exercise-induced asthma patient who no longer has inhalers and and has to worry about the fear of exercising and being on a team sport because they can't perform, and a kid who was afraid to run because he couldn't run, he didn't know how to tell you that he's seven and he can't run because he can't breathe, and now all of a sudden. His parents I didn't know my son could do that. Like he can, he's in sports. He can do these things that other kids can do. I mean, you're changing the life of a kid or an adult. And you rarely get to do that with the consistency you can with an airway prep. It's amazing. So if you're really interested in your commitment to health of your patients and improving their lives, This is one thing that is dramatic. It really is dramatic.
0: Thank you for that. Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate um, your time. Now we're just going to go to the questions. I have a bunch of questions here. Um, One says, can you please make the articles that the doctors sent you available to us for review? I think you sent me the articles or the names of the articles of the... um, the ones about is is treating children safe, but do you, yes, could you possibly send me articles on anything that you've written around um, the Bruxism uh, the Bruxism study? That's not, not that's not published yet. What, when will that be published?
1: Oh, I don't know. Um, it's going to take some time. Take a little bit of time yet. Yeah, we're still working on on some of the data, um, but I gave you the thirty thousand foot view of what we're seeing so far.
0: Yeah. So I I will I will share with, you know, I will share the names of the articles. Everybody can go on Google Scholar maybe and and find the articles there. Um,
1: I'll send you a bunch of articles. If I, you could do people. that, that'd be great. You can share them with the audience. Sure.
0: Wonderful. Wonderful. Okay. This is to Justin. Um, what is the name of the study you're mentioning about the resistance in the upper nose, upper, upper part of the nose? And what part of the nose is it that is getting, getting obstructed?
1: Uh, well, there's a couple of parts. Um, it's called uh, the middle meatal region, middle meatal region, uh, and something called the swell body. So those are along the upper pathway. Um, and um, I can send you the swell body article. And also, uh, like I said, in the articles I'll send you, uh, all of that will be in there.
0: Okay, great, great. Um, he says, I asked because I had a septoplasty and the turbinate reduction that failed and my breathing is very challenged.
1: There you go, because they <laughs> didn't hit the right spot. But, sorry, <laughs> Justin.
0: <laughs> okay, um, it says, please, this is VH, please uh, spell name and also also what is, what is take on appliances that push the jaw forward? Breathing is so much better in doctor's office, but fell out in sleep one night. Um, 10 broke, so did not continue. So this patient is wondering about mandibular advancement devices for opening up the airway. What is your take on those? Uh,
1: we recommend them. Uh, usually they are for patients with with apnea and sometimes for snoring. Um, well, people don't really, we used to think that the palate was the source of all the snoring, the vibration, uh, which in some patients it is, but there's a lot more data showing actually it's tongue vibration. So by... Uh, an oral appliance like that can move the tongue forward, um, and can help with even with snores as well as apnea patients, but only in concert with the nose. If you don't do the nose, then then that's not going to work because the mouth has to be closed for the oral appliance to work well So you have to be able to be nasal breathing.
0: I also find that those appliances need you need to do a bite shift, or your jaw can get stuck in class three yeah. um, position. You have to be very
1: careful with how to do it. It's, it's yeah. very, you have to go to a person who does them. It's custom work, not these off-the-shelf things that they sell.
0: Yeah. Um, what was the name of the monkey study is one question.
1: So it was H O R V A L D. Um yeah. And it was about 1970.
0: Okay. Uh, can you comment on tonsil surgery in children? I have patients with enlarged tonsils and are mouth-breathing. Pediatrician won't refer for surgery, but only prescribes nasal spray to increase nasal breathing.
1: Okay, so here's the deal with that: Um, the pediatricians are going to tell the parents that if the child doesn't have infections from the large tonsil, that if the child will outgrow the problem. This is the common standard language: child will outgrow the problem, and in about 75% of the cases. They're probably right. The children's, the tonsils will involute and shrink over time. The problem is by the time that happens, which is usually mid to late teens, the airway development is complete and the child is now an airway cripple. So the pediatricians don't know. We talked about earlier about the early development. So you got to get those tonsils corrected early in the cases where it's necessary so that the child can breathe normally and grow normally. But it's not just the tonsils. It has to be the nose. Most ENTs you send a patient to will look for tonsils. They don't have big tonsils. They say there's nothing wrong with the child. They don't know about the nose. So the tonsils, yes, but adenoids and nose go with that, not just tonsils. But that's the pediatrician line is they're going to outgrow the problem, but it's too late by the time the child grows. Right. And the, only child, and the only problem they outgrow is the large tonsils. The airway issue is still there, just that the tonsils not big enough.
0: Right, and then and then they need to train their tongue posture. They need yeah, to train their swallowing, changes. so yeah. everything grows yeah, it becomes properly. A big mess. Yeah, yeah. Um, name of the doctor you mentioned who wrote in two thousand nine? That was one question. Yeah.
1: D E, capital D E, capital Y U N, and then Wang W A N G, and he's uh, in Singapore at the University uh, in Singapore.
0: Thank you for that. Um, Can you touch on patients that this is the last one? Can you touch on patients that aren't breathing well, though maybe don't know it because they're always, they've always been that way and have nothing else to compare it to? For instance, what symptoms may they have that tell us they aren't breathing optimally that they can look for?
1: Sure. So this depends on whether it's a child or an adult. Okay, this is a very common scenario in the uh In the child, uh, there is something that I call the DNA at the crime scene. Okay. If you have this, you have an airway issue. And that is the need for braces, the need for orthodontic care. Any child who needs braces, 98% of them, develop crooked teeth because of an airway issue. That's the genesis of the abnormal. Of posture of the teeth in children. Okay. And so if you have a child who comes in and has that problem and they say, the parents say, but he breathes fine. I don't see any problem. I said, no, he's got crooked teeth. Look at his teeth. That only occurs from one thing. He's not breathing properly. And the craniofacial muscles push on the jaw and change the size of the palate so there's no room for the adult teeth to come in, so they come in all crooked because there was no horizontal growth of the upper palate. And this is what causes that in every one of these kids. So that's the DNA, the DNA at the crime scene in a kid. You have that, you don't have to go much further, but you can ask about you know, snoring, grinding, uh, active sleep. How active is the kid during sleep? Do they move around a lot? If the children move around a lot during sleep, they're set up for ADHD, okay? And that means they have sleep disorder breathing. Um, because why they're moving around is adrenaline secretion. They're getting adrenaline secreted by their body to keep them breathing through the obstructed airway. And the adrenaline is a muscle stimulant as well as an airway stimulant. And so they move. They move around and sleep, oftentimes horribly so. Um, and that's not just a kid who's got bad dreams. That's a kid who is having adrenaline secretion. And that's because of an airway um, But kids with bad dreams, um, Kids who have bedwetting is another one. That's due to hormonal changes uh, as well because of this uh, airway issue. The pituitary gland is affected, and they have hormone changes that make them not be able to retain. uh, They make too much urine at night. Basically, there's a hormone called ADH that is secreted at night to reduce urine production in all of us. Um, Adults have less of it as they get older, which is why old people get up to pee more than young people. But kids, if they don't have this hormone, they're going to wet the bed. They're going to overflow their bladder. So that's because of the pituitary dysfunction do the oxygen. Very common. Sometimes 12-year-old kids say to me, when am I going to stop wetting the bed? I can't go to any sleep sleepovers, because I wet the bed. You say it's going to take about two months after surgery. It's going to go wet. That's how long it takes for the brain to adjust. So those things in kids are pretty easy, low-hanging fruit. In adults, it's dry mouth at night, okay, in the morning when they wake up, okay, a uh, common one, and anything with, with snoring, anything like that, obviously. Uh, If they flip from side to side because they get obstructed, uh, and they they may say, well, that's normal. Doesn't everybody do that? No, everybody doesn't do that, but obviously uh, they do. Uh, And if they have comorbidities and any kind of hypertension, any kind of cardiac dysrhythmia, atrial fibrillation, uh, supraventricular tachycardia, anything with the rhythm of the heart, Especially in someone who's you know 40 to 60, look at airway. Uh, diabetics, uh, by the way, can be hardly strongly influenced by airway issues because of stress. We talked about that, which raises their blood sugar all the time. Um, and um, so those are, and then cognitive issues, you know, include. You've probably heard of something um, called the ESS Epworth Sleepiness Scale, right? Have them do an ESS right in the office. Just ask them fill out this. It's five, six questions. They fill it out. Do they fall asleep at a traffic light? Do they fall asleep watching a movie? Do they fall asleep, you know, doing, doing this, sitting quietly on a couch in the afternoon? And if they're over 10 on the upward sleepiness score, they've got an airway issue, you know? Um, that's a simple thing they can do. Uh, the other thing is, you know, we would look in their nose, but if you're not one of those people, you can use these other types of, of metrics.
0: Great. Um, there was one more that came up. Uh, what kind of di- diagnostic testing and or imaging can be done to know where the problem area, obstruction area is specifically in the nose?
1: So Every patient we see who comes in with this kind of a, a complaint gets what's called the sinus CAT scan. It's a non-contrast study. Um, takes about five minutes, six minutes to do. A lot of people have scanners in their office, even dentists do and the dentist can scan the patient. Uh, You can have them go to a a facility to get a scan done. Even in children, you can go to low radiation units that are very safe for kids. Um, And you wanna get what's called coronal images, images that go across the face this way. So you can, as if you're looking in the face and and everything is very obvious on those images as to what's going on. So that's a very simple test to get. Um, The problem though, as I'm gonna mention is the radiologist reading the study, if they're not aware of airway issues, they're going to look at, is there infection? Is there polyps. They're not going to look at the anatomy of the airway the way that, you know, we would look at it because, again, they're not trained in.
0: Is that like a CVCT that you're talking yeah. about? Same CVCT
1: thing? is one of the things that are dentists use. Exactly right.
0: Okay. So that you're saying that that would be a good way for the ENT to know if it's not the inferior turbinate, but that- It's need always the...
1: both, it's always both. Okay. It's always both. The question is, you know, if you just treat one, you're not gonna get the result you want like the person who asked the question earlier. I mean, think it's it. just-
0: Got it. Um, and he says, no one knows how to read those properly. He, he says after you said that. Okay. But they're very
1: easy. I mean, we show patients, the patients become experts. You know, yeah. I show a mother with two or three kids, and she can pick it out right away from from XA XA. Oh, look, he's got the same thing. You say, yeah, it's so easy to pick out.
0: That's great. Well, Peter, I, I, are you going to be at the AAPMD conference this year? Yes. You said you're we're speaking giving, uh,
1: at it, giving a lecture there on some of this kind of stuff. Yep.
0: Okay, um, great. I I hope to see you at the lecture. I'm speaking with uh, Bill Esser, who's also on this call. He's a physical therapist that also does TMJ, and we're 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 doing a joint. Um, uh, presentation on how he treats TMD and how I've incorporated the breathing, the oral posture, the swallow training to kind of stabilize the patient. Um, and, uh, so, just
1: a shout out to Justin real quick. Justin, if you come to the meeting, get a new
0: CAT scan, bring it.
1: we we'll together. I'll show you exactly what's going on there. <laughs> there yeah, you go, Justin.
0: Yeah. AAPMD, it's the American Academy of Physiological Medicine and Dentistry, and we're meeting. September 7th, I believe in Orlando. Orlando. Yeah. Okay. Thank you everybody. Thanks so much for for joining and I appreciate your time, Dr. Catalano. I hope to see you in September and we will be in touch about those articles. I really appreciate it. Thanks Jenny. Thanks everybody. Thank, Good you. Night. Thank you for listening to The Breathing Lab with Dr. Jenny.